You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you have health insurance, it's easy to forget about your out-of-pocket costs. That can be a lot of money. But are your bills accurate? Well, it's estimated that over 50% of medical bills contain errors. HealthLock can help you. HealthLock technology securely connects with your insurance and flags any overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To date, HealthLock has helped its members save over $130 million. So to save, visit HealthLock.com today. That's HealthLock.com today. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Why are we humans so easy to deceive? What are the tricks of the trade and how can we train ourselves to be more aware of these? And what does any of this have to do with Theranos or forging letters or the shell game? Welcome to Inner Cosmos with me, David Eagleman. I'm a neuroscientist and an author at Stanford. And in these episodes, I examine the intersection between our brains and our lives. And today's episode is about deception. You presumably wouldn't do something to cheat a stranger out of $20. So why are there people who would do that? And what can we do to be a little more thoughtful and aware and immune against deception? So in a previous episode, I talked about a really impactful event when I was a neuroscience graduate student getting my PhD. I was a second year student in the department and this new young woman came in as a first year student. We'll call her Tanya. And everyone could see that Tanya was great. She had great grades, top standardized test scores, terrific letters of recommendation. And in the interviews, She even won over my graduate advisor who was famously spiky towards people. And I tell her full story in episode 16, but the short version is that she faked everything on her graduate school application. She faked 
the school transcript and the GRE scores and the letters of recommendation. And she was only caught because an administrator at the school was so impressed with her that she decided to call the professors who had written the letters of recommendation to ask how they'd produced a student like Tanya. And that's how the whole house of cards came tumbling down. Now, for those of you who listened to episode 16, you'll remember that Tanya's story then got much weirder because she went to Yale University and tried to pull exactly the same trick. And when she was caught there, they put her in jail. And then she and her mother got caught doing a drug deal with two undercover agents. And then Tanya decided to try murdering a girl who looked vaguely like her to avoid going to prison. Now, that plot failed, but only barely. So that's the quick recap of the story. But the part I want to concentrate on today is why did none of us see this coming? We all thought she was great. And this was a neuroscience graduate program full of people who were aspiring learners about the human brain and faculty who were presumably already experts in the brain. And yet every single one of us thought that Tanya was great. None of us even had the briefest glimpse of doubt or suspicion when she started school. And we were all maximally surprised when we saw how completely we had been fooled. So why were we so blind? Well, first of all, none of us would have thought about faking our transcripts and writing fake letters and so on. That kind of deception didn't exist in our mental models. And so it was totally invisible to us when it was sitting there right in front of us. And one of the themes of this podcast and of my next book is that we need to get better at seeing outside the garden walls of our own internal models. This is really what the passage into maturity is about, seeing the limitations of our own thinking and realizing that what's going on in someone else's head might be very different than what's going on inside ours. Even if we're not the kind of person to do something, even if it seems absolutely unimaginable to us, it doesn't mean that it seems that way to someone else. And if you heard episodes 20 and 21, you'll know that we dove into some of the really awful things that happened during wartime. And again, just because you can't imagine hacking your neighbors to death with a machete or shooting your neighbors or bayonetting them, it doesn't mean that someone else can't imagine that and won't foment violence without having much compunction about it. So an understanding of history requires an expansion of our mental models. And that's what's required for navigating day-to-day -day life as well, because not everyone is just like you on the inside. For example, psychopaths make up about 1% of the population. And by the way, they make up about 20 to 30% of the prison population. They don't care about you. They don't simulate what it is like to be you. And they can be violent towards you because they just see you as an obstacle to flow around to get what they want. And I'm going to do an episode on psychopathy soon. But the point I want to make right now is that if you are not a psychopath, this is very difficult to imagine someone behaving that way. But you'll be smarter in your daily life if you understand how other people can be different from you.
Now, sometimes people are different in wonderful ways. Like when you see some situation in which someone is braver than you or just more charitable with a higher percentage of their money or more willing to do the right thing, like to climb the side of a building to save the toddler hanging off the balcony, even though you would be more scared. But sometimes we see people different from us in the other direction, people who cheat and lie and steal. And it's hard to understand because we don't have a good model of that. And so we're often caught completely by surprise. I'll give you an example of this. When I was young, when I was 16 years old, I was traveling with my parents in Barcelona and I was spending an afternoon walking around by myself and I saw a crowd of people playing a shell game. You know, this is the game where a person puts a small ball under one of three cups and then rotates the cups around and around. And then you have to guess which cup the ball is under. So I stopped to watch because there was a small crowd and the dealer was moving the cups around and there was this pedestrian like me who had put down some money. And the pedestrian watched the cups go round and round. And when they stopped, he pointed to a cup and it was the wrong cup. But I could see where the cups had moved and I knew it was the cup on the left, but this pedestrian pointed to the middle. So the dealer uncovered the middle cup and the whole crowd made a whooping sound. And so the pedestrian put down more money to play another round and the dealer shows the ball under the left cup and then he rotates the cups around faster and faster. But I kept my eyes locked on the correct cup and again, the pedestrian guessed wrong, but I knew where the ball was. So this happens a few more rounds and the pedestrian gives up and the dealer looks at me and motions for me to put up some money. So I did. So he shows me the ball and rotates the cups around and around and I keep my eye on it. And when he stops, I point to the correct cup and the cup was empty. I got it wrong. What was going on? So he motions for me to put down more money and I want to win my lost money back. So I put down more and he runs the rotations again. And I point to the cup where the ball should be. And again, it's empty. And before I know it, someone in the crowd makes a whoop sound and suddenly the dealer folds up the board and the entire crowd disappears. And I'm standing there all by myself in the street. And I felt like such a fool because I had just been deceived. Now, this is embarrassing for me to tell the story. And even all these years later, there's some pain in the remembrance but my hope in relating the story is that at least one teenage listener gets an expansion of their mental model from this and doesn't have to play this game. Just in case you don't know, there is no honest version of the shell game. It's always performed by hucksters who use sleight of hand to move the ball from one cup to another. And the whole crowd is in on the deception. Now, when I did some research on this, I found the shell game is very old. So the game of people trying to deceive other people is ancient. Now, sometimes deception is planned in advance like this. And sometimes people are just trying to get out of bad situation and they make it worse. Sometimes it's hard to tell. I mean, look at the company Theranos, which you've probably heard of. They were a health tech company founded by a young woman named Elizabeth Holmes. And they were out to develop a biological test that could measure a whole bunch of things using just a drop or two of blood. So they raised $724 million from investors, including the media mogul Robert Murdoch and former Secretary of State Henry Kissinger, 
And all kinds of big players were enthusiastic about this revolutionary technology. But this all came crashing down in 2015 when it surfaced that Theranos had been lying about what their technology could do. Holmes was charged with fraud and conspiracy, and she was found guilty in 2022. Now, you probably know this story, but the interesting backside of this story is so many people here in Silicon Valley have said things to me suggesting that they would have never fallen for Theranos. Like, oh, I would have known right away that couldn't work. But that's silly, and I generally don't believe them because it's easy to get duped. And if the other people who believe in it and invest in it and sit on the board are billionaires and big shots, what's to make you think that wouldn't have a great gravitational pull on you? Because the truth is, when we look at things that other people believe in, or even simply things that match our expectations, we often don't do any further looking into it. Now, this puts us in a tough spot because we have to trust other people. We really have no choice because we can't disbelieve everything or have time to check on everything. So how do we work around this bias? How can we take some of the tools of science, which are all about clear thinking, and import these into our daily lives? Well, I'm no expert on this. I often err on the side of believing everyone, but I knew who to call. My colleagues, Dan Simons and Christopher Chabri, recently wrote a terrific book all about deception called Nobody's Fool. So I rung them up. The most interesting thing we found about what all the cons and deceptions have in common is that the con artists, the scammers, the swindlers, whatever you want to call them, all seem to be taking advantage of sort of the same set of our cognitive proclivities and our attentional biases, what we like to pay attention to, what attracts us, and what mistakes we tend to make um, in decision-making that we may not be aware of. That's Christopher Chabri, a professor of psychology and director of decision sciences at Geisinger Research Institute. They may not be consciously aware of, but somehow they have sort of learned and adapted their schemes to things that tend to exploit these loopholes in our thinking. Not loopholes that are sort of design flaws necessarily. They're, uh, they're actually usually, you know, good things about how we think. But um, when someone is really trying to take advantage of us, they can cleverly exploit those and, and gain the advantage. So... What are the important lessons for all of us to think about, given that? I would say there are a few. Um, And that's Dan Simons, a professor of psychology at the University of Illinois. One is that we have a tendency to assume that only the most gullible or naive or uneducated people fall for scams. And that's partly because we generally only see the results of cons and scams after they're over, right? So it's easy to see what the red flags were when you knew it was a scam and you found out it was a scam. In the same way that we can easily spot, you know, the obvious ones in advance, things like the Nigerian Prince email scam that we know about, we can spot those red flags because we've seen them before. But we tend to assume that all scams prey on the people who are gullible. And one of the key insights we've across all of the sorts of scams that we've encountered is that scams can affect anybody. Cons can affect anybody if they're targeted in the right way to our wants and desires and needs. Yeah, you know, I thought about this a lot with Theranos here in Silicon Valley. 
retrospectively, everyone acted like, oh, I would have never fallen for that. But it's obvious that a lot of good and smart people got sucked up into that. And so how do you, how do you interpret that? Well, I think it's uh, the way we see something like Theranos is in hindsight, uh, after the fact, in the same way that we might watch a heist movie or a whodunit movie, where we know there's a heist, right? We know there's a con artist. We know that in, in the context of the movie, we know to look for those red flags. We're trying to figure it out. And the characters in the movie aren't. But when it's viewed from the outside, it's kind of obvious, right? So Theranos, after the fact... Yeah, there are lots of red flags along the way, and they've been reported thoroughly, and it's great narrative. But when you're immersed in it, and you're trying to figure out what's the next best investment, or what do I want to get in on really quick, if you're a venture capitalist trying to kind of get in on the next big thing, spotting all those red flags is more difficult because you're incentivized to act with efficiency and to try and catch things before they take off and before people know about them. So those are the contexts in which they're the marks rather than watching some interesting, engaging movie. In the case of Theranos also, you know, there were people who didn't invest um, and who didn't join the board of directors and so on. They don't get as much publicity as the unfortunate ones who did and uh, and, and look like marks and suckers and, and so on in, in retrospect. But some professional investors who specialized in biotech and healthcare investing, they asked a lot more questions uh, about the product, about the technology, about clinical data, about all of that stuff. And then they walked away. And I think one other important point about Theranos is I think, although I don't know because I'm not inside the heads of all those people, but I think a lot of people didn't even consciously consider the idea that there might have been a scam or a fraud going on. Everything seemed good. Everybody was optimistic. There was a great vision, little things that seemed kind of odd. Maybe you can explain away. This is just a quirky company. The CEO is a little odd. Uh, you know, well, they've got all these famous people on the board. That must be a good thing. Simply considering the possibility in, in a big decision-making situation that you maybe are being scammed or there's something going on that that you're not aware of, you know, could be the first step towards like starting to see those red flags or look for those red flags. And maybe you can actually find some of them if you're even thinking about the possibility that they might be out there somewhere. We require a lot of trust just to get by in life. And so how do you guys think about striking a balance of trust and a little bit of suspicion? Well, trust is essential, right? In fact, we tend to assume that when we hear something uh, from somebody, it's it's true. And until we take time to think about it otherwise, and most of the time, that's a great thing because in most conversations, nobody's trying to lie to you. In most interactions, nobody's trying to con you. I mean, the odds of any of us being a victim of a Bernie Madoff or a Theranos is pretty low. The odds of any of us receiving fake information on social media is pretty high. But we tend to be trusting of the information we get and it's a good thing that we are, right? If we were constantly skeptical of everything we encountered, we could just never do anything. We could never have a conversation. You can't check everything. You can't be a perpetual skeptic or cynic about everything. You're not going to go check uh, in the grocery store if you buy uh, an organic uh, apple, right? You're not going to go out to the farm and make sure they didn't use any pesticides, right? It's too much. Um, we, we can't really check that. We have to accept that some of the time we're going to have to be trusting. And the key is to kind of figure out when are those times when we're at the greatest risk? When are those times when the consequences could be bad enough that we really would want to check and see if we're being scammed? So before we go on to some other topics, just can you give a few examples of hoaxes or swindles or scams so that our listeners can understand what what we're talking about? Uh, I I have a good one that I think a lot of people probably haven't heard of, but they really should have. 
which is called sometimes the president scam or the CEO scam. And I didn't discover it. We it's it, it's been it was going on for a while and it was documented elsewhere. But I think it's a great example of some of, uh, of, of some of the key ideas. So this French Israeli fraudster um, named Gilbert Shikley developed uh, a scam in which he would call up sort of mid-level employees of French companies pretending to be the CEO of the company, reaching down through the ranks and calling up some middle manager and giving them a task to do directly for him. And the task always wound up in money being transferred directly to some like, you know, bank account or person or something like that, where, of course, it wound up with Shikley and whoever his associates were in their bank account somehow. And I think it's it's kind of an audacious con because it's one guy with a telephone calling people up who he's never met before and talking them into essentially giving him a lot of money. But it does... Uh, illustrate sort of the idea of truth bias that Dan was just talking about, that if you don't believe that the person on the phone is the CEO calling you, the whole thing goes nowhere. But once you believe that, then the scam has a chance to get through. And it also illustrates sort of some of the selection, sort of some of the selection bias we see in cons. Like we we hear about the ones that worked, but we don't know about all the people who just like hung up the phone or deleted the email when he tried to talk, to, you know, to start talking them into it. Just like the millions and millions of people who delete the Nigerian prince emails never get a mention anywhere. You know, it's just a few people who actually wind up going through with it. That CEO scam or, or president scam went along for quite a long time and sort of morphed and changed into different versions where eventually people were pretending to be the defense minister of France, calling, you know, contacting wealthy individuals, especially with French ties, and saying that the government of France needed their help getting hostages, uh, uh, secret hostages out of Syria and, and from ISIS and so on, and and wound up taking, I think, something like $80 million or 80 million euros in total from a number of uh, you know, French companies and wealthy, wealthy individuals by sort of similar tactics. There's a new modern version of this, which is much dumber and much simpler. It doesn't require any sort of sophisticated persuasion. People just send an email purportedly from the boss of a company and saying, hey, I'm in a meeting right now, but I need to transfer these funds right away, or I need to close this sale. Can you just go ahead and make this transfer for me? And if the email happens to reach somebody who is responsible for doing that, Right, then they might go ahead and do it without even double checking when in reality, the money would just get paid to some other count of the scammers. Um, and this, this is so pervasive that I have a cousin who teaches tennis. She runs a tennis club and regularly gets her, her underlings, the other people teaching there regularly get emails from her, not really from her, but from her saying, Hey, I'm, I'm in a meeting. Can you run this? Can you make this payment? And her employees and, and coworkers know that. That's not true because she's pretty much never in meetings and they're not the sorts of people who make purchases. But again, if you send it out to enough people, you're going to happen to hit some who in that moment are busy doing things, are used to getting emails from their boss, asking them to do something really quickly and will go along with it without questioning it. And this is a major source of uh, business fraud. Do you guys have any other examples? Just something that some hoax or swindle or something that you came across that you think is really illustrative? I can give another example from um, from the world of chess. So, so I'm a chess player. Well, Dan is also a chess player. Um, I'm probably a more serious player than Dan is, and I'm a funnier player. <laughs> Dan's a funny player. I'm a serious player. Um, I'll try to be funnier though. Um, when when you play chess online, you you don't see the person you're playing. It's just a screen name. 
Um, and all you see is the moves they play on an animated chessboard, kind of like you're playing a video game, right? You just see the moves being made. And so I was playing a game once. This has happened to me more than once, but the occasion that I remember is I was playing a game and it was a guy I'd never played before. And the game started and he had a similar rating to mine, meaning, you know, we were both pretty good players. I should be ready for a, you know, I should be ready for a good game. And every move I made, it seemed like he always found like a great response and he never made a mistake. And times when I thought I was winning, I really wasn't winning because he found the escape. And moreover, he was moving quite quickly. Like he would make every move in like five to 10 seconds. And was like, wow, this guy's putting a lot of pressure on me. You know, I'm, I'm thinking for a minute sometimes on these moves and he comes back in 10 seconds all the time. Um, and in the end, I got checkmated and I lost the game. And I thought, wow, that guy, like that guy played a really good game against me. But, but then when I looked at the game afterwards, chess.com, where we played this game, shows you exactly how much time both players use on every move uh, after the game. And I noticed that he was making all of his moves within that very tight band of five to 10 seconds per move, basically. Never less than five seconds, never more than 10 seconds. Maybe it was 12 seconds, I don't remember. But if you looked at my own graph, there were a couple of moves that I took like one or two minutes on, and some moves I played almost instantly, like one second. The consistency of his timing, and also the consistency of the fact that he never made a mistake. All of his moves were you know, almost the best move, if not the best move, um, according to computer analysis, really reveals that all he was doing was being a conduit for a computer. Like he was just typing my moves into a computer and typing and putting back onto chess.com the moves that the computer told him to play. And here's an example where the behavior of a human, you know, really ought to be more noisy in some fundamental way than the behavior of a computer. Humans never play moves with robotic cadences. They never play the correct move, 40 or 50 moves in a row. And there's just much more variability in human decision-making and almost any human activity um, than there is in computer-based activity. So I filed a report. You know, you can report any player. And sure enough, like a day or two later, chess.com came back and said, we're giving you back the rating points you lost. This guy has violated, you know, violated our fair play policy. And that kind of thing happens all the time in online chess because computers are so good that they can be used easily to cheat. The real problem is, are people using it sort of like in over the board and like serious tournaments and matches? And that's a whole other controversy. But certainly it was a case where, you know, I was essentially the victim of a little minor scam. I happened to figure it out. But as a scam based on people not noticing that, you know, not noticing the absence of variability, which is a, a critical thing in a lot of in a lot of cons. I was going to say one thing about that, uh, that particular case, it's a fairly minor scam, right? It's um, it's just one element of the kinds of habits and hooks that we find really compelling, the hook of consistency, right? Or that, yeah, it, it's just something that we don't look for the noise when we should. But if you look at bigger scams, things like Bernie Madoff's Ponzi scheme or Theranos, they rely on a whole bunch of our cognitive tendencies and they appeal to a lot of kinds of information that we find really valuable uh, and that do help us most of the time, but they take advantage of those um, to, to dupe us. So can can you unpack that a little bit about noise in data and what we should be looking for? Well, I mean, really in any human behavior, anything that's governed by interaction of people, we don't expect people to perform the same way every single time. We don't expect a 300 hitter or 333 baseball hitter to hit one out of every single, th every, one out of every three at-bats, right? They will on average, average about one out of every three, but in any game, that doesn't guarantee they're going to get at least one hit, 
right? Uh, we, we tend to confuse the sort of on average performance with what happens every single time. So take the case of Bernie Madoff's Ponzi scheme, right? This wasn't a sort of classic Ponzi scheme where he promised 50% returns in six months, like a, you know, current crypto scam would. His returned eight to 14% or eight to 12% almost every year for the entire life of the Ponzi scheme with never a down year and almost never a down month. It was like a smooth, steady growth. And that's not what you expect for something as complex as a financial system. You expect ups and downs. Sometimes you'll be up 25% in a year. Sometimes you'll be down 10% in a year. And the average might be 8 to 12%, and that'd be pretty good. But you don't expect the average to be true of every single case. And this plays out in many, many contexts where usually consistency is a sign that we have great understanding of how things work. We can do it the same way every single time. We want things to be reliable, but the tendency to have things be too consistent can be so appealing to us that we don't realize when noise should be present. This is a, uh, common in a lot of science fraud as well, that you find results that are just too consistent to be believable. But the people who are making it up don't realize that they need to make up noise too. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. 
There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash iHeart. That's LifeLock.com slash iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. So a lot of the reasons that we fall for hoaxes or scams is because of cognitive shortcuts that we're taking. So tell us about that and what we can do about those shortcuts. Well, one of the most important shortcuts, I think, is it's not even so much a shortcut. It's just a, a, a standard, standard operating procedure. We are very good at paying attention to things. You know, attention is a wonderful thing. We can do things with attention that we can't do without attention. Like we couldn't even follow, you know, a soccer game or a football game or a basketball game without attention. Otherwise, it would just be a big blur of bodies moving around and this little round thing, like, you know, flying back and forth occasionally. We'd have no hope of understanding it. But with attention, we can focus on selected aspects of it and sort of put together the plot and the sequence of events and what people are trying to do and understand the intentions behind it all the way up to the strategies and so on. It's, it's great. However, the downside of attention is that when we're paying attention to something, we may not notice other things um, that we're not paying attention to. And uh, a clever fraudster knows that. And they know that if they can get our attention on one thing, kind of like a magician, um, then we might not notice other important things that are happening. And of course, they're not doing magic. They're actually you know, trying to deceive us for profit. So many of the um, basic sort of deceptions in areas like marketing, where it's sort of not even deception in some cases. It's just kind of like the way business is done. You get the recipient um, to focus on uh, what you're showing them, and you can count on them usually to not ask questions about what you're not showing them. So for example, like a product demo video, like this uh, this uh, startup company called Nikola, which is still around, trying to build uh, electric vehicles, trucks in this case, they created a demo video of one of their trucks um, tooling down a highway, looked like going at a nice rate of speed and they had impressive music behind it and so on, counting on people not to realize, not to think, well, wait a minute, what happened before the demo started? What was the angle that the camera was at? Actually, the camera was tilted a little bit. So actually what was appeared to be rolling down on a flat surface was rolling down a hill. So the thing actually had no functioning motor, you know, and so on. It just rolled down a hill slowly. And then the positioning of the camera and the video, you know, cutting did the rest of the work. And those are things we just don't think about, right? We're focusing on the truck. It looks nice. It's moving, nice background and so on. And we don't ask what's missing. Like, what information are we missing about what's here? What information are they not providing to us? Are they telling us about all the times they tried to make the vehicle work, but it just didn't work at all? And just showing us the one time that it did. Uh, so attention, focus is really useful. But it creates, 
you know, it sort of creates a loophole. It creates a way for other people to, uh, you know, to exploit that. Well, one cognitive shortcut that you mentioned in the book is prediction. So how is it that we become victims of our own life experience? Yeah, and I think that's a great way of phrasing it, that it's our life experience. It makes sense for us to have expectations based on our past experience and to use those predictions. And the vast majority of the time, we can use our past behavior to predict what's going to happen in the future, right? That, that's a, a really important thing to be able to do. The challenge comes in that we don't tend to question enough uh, the information we get when it's perfectly consistent with what we predicted. Right? So, and this is something that I think is really interesting in the context of scientific errors. So, let's say you run an experiment and you've got an, an experimental group and a placebo group, and you want to see which one does better, right? And you're predicting your new experimental intervention is going to do great. And let's say that you find that the placebo condition actually does better than the experimental condition. Well, you're going to really dig into those results. You're going to dig into the data. You're going to look at your code. You're going to make sure that everything was coded correctly, that there weren't any data points that like didn't make sense. You're going to make sure you didn't swap the names of the conditions so that you got it wrong. You're going to look into it pretty carefully because it didn't match what you were predicting. Had it come out exactly the way you predicted, you might not dig as closely. And that's been something that's led to a lot of errors, right? So you you have a spreadsheet that produces the right results and you don't double check to make sure you didn't fill down the column incorrectly right? because it matched what you were predicting. So that sort of error is, I think, a really common one. We're really good at applying our critical faculties when we see something we don't like, that we didn't expect, that we didn't predict. Somebody shares something on social media that was counter to your views, you can rip into that. And, and we're all pretty good at doing that. But when it perfectly matches, we're much more likely to just quickly pass it along and retweet it and not necessarily think through carefully, is it really true? Indeed, when we see things that are familiar and matching our expectation, we don't look further into it. So how do we work around that bias? Well, I would say, obviously, the first thing is to be aware that we're doing this. Um, that's the first step. Second step is to, and, and again, like not every moment of every day, but when you're making a big decision or when you think the, the stakes are high or when someone might be trying to deceive you, ask consciously, explicitly, whether you predicted what just happened. And if you did predict it, then actually check it out as well. Like a lot of times we don't even sort of stop to wonder um, whether this is coming out exactly the way I predicted because, you know, things rarely happen exactly the way we predict, you know, especially in a, an environment we don't have a lot of experience for with before. When we're doing a new experiment, testing a new theory, should it really come out exactly like we predict? I mean, Maybe if we're the big best scientist ever, you know, <laughs> um, but but often like, often it doesn't go that way. So we should be vigilant at those points also to see, like, is our code right? Did we, you know, did we make a mistake or something like that? The, the example that Dan gave about switching the columns, you know, or switching the variable names or something like that is actually exactly what happened in a, you know, a, a fairly recently uncovered case where the data totally did not support the claim that was being made. This was a study of uh, the idea that um, signing a declaration at the top versus at the bottom would make you more honest in what you declared on that form. So in this case, it was um, an automobile insurance company. They were asking people to report how many miles they had driven their vehicles in the previous year. And the test was sign at the top saying you're going to be honest in your reporting versus sign at the bottom saying you've been honest in what you reported. And the idea was like signing first would draw your attention to honesty and you'd you know produce more uh, you know more accurate, more honest results in that case. And when uh, 
when this experiment was done and, and the, the data file was being looked at by some of the researchers, it, initially, it seemed like there was no effect at all, or the effect was even the opposite of what they had expected. But then one of them said, oh, well, I accidentally switched the, the columns. Uh, you know, so once the columns were switched back, then the effect, you know, turned out to be right. Basically, exactly as Dan said, you know, you switch sort of the, you know, the, the, the treatment and the placebo, in this case, the sign first and sign and, and sign later columns. Well, it turned out in retrospect that the entire data set was fraudulent. But once they got the result that, you know, that fit, fit the theory or fit the prediction or fit the expectations, then apparently they stopped looking to see, does the rest of the data make sense? Are there any obvious red flags in there and so on? I, I think a perfect example of at least, you know, some authors of that paper being satisfied that their, you know, the theory had been confirmed and not looking more deeply enough. Of course, you know, researchers are taught to look at the distributions of their variables, look at all of this kinds of stuff and so on before getting too excited about just, you know, confirming their hypothesis. But sometimes that's hard even for experienced scientists to do. So in our own everyday life, we should be more aware of when our expectations are being sort of exquisitely satisfied. That could be someone deliberately designing something to, uh, you know, to take advantage of us. I was going to say, in a much more mundane case, you know, before you repost something or share it on social media, just ask yourself, is it really true? Right. And what would I need to know to be sure that it was really true? And that's something you can do whether or not it you agree with it. And it just takes a second. But once you ask that question, you might realize, I have no idea how I know if that were actually true. You know, I'd have to do a lot of digging. And then, you know, maybe just don't reshare things that you haven't been able to verify. <laughs> it might, might actually help prevent the spread of information. I think most people really do want to only share true stuff. I don't think people deliberately want to spread false information a lot of time. I think they're just not often thinking like whether it might be false. That's there's they're being swept along by other cues besides that. I, I want to jump back to the science, uh, the practice of science for just a second, which is I was just talking to some colleagues who got a big data set and they wanted to prove something in particular about it. They got this big thing of police records and they had a particular thing that they wanted to demonstrate and they analyzed it and couldn't find evidence for their hypothesis. So they figured out another way to look at it statistically and then, and then another way and they still couldn't find And finally they came up with some way, some statistical trick and they were very proud, they said, to have found finally this evidence of this bias that they were looking for in these police records. But it made me wonder about it because they clearly went in to find this thing. And the question is, did they do the right thing by continuing to search and search and search with different statistical methods? Or is it purely that they were trying to make the duck quack in a particular way? How do you think about these issues? It's a really complicated problem because of course you want to be able to explore your data, right? The, the problem comes when you don't think about all of the alternative paths you could take to get to the outcome that you want to report, right? And Andrew Gelman refers to this as the garden of forking paths. And I think it doesn't imply any sort of malicious intent or intent to deceive at all. But we make lots of choices along the way that can influence the result, right? And sometimes we don't even think about what those choices were. So I think the problem comes not in exploring your data really fully. It comes in only reporting the thing that worked, right? The one example, the one analysis that was successful. And what you really want to know is, hey, is this hypothesis robust to a whole bunch of different ways of testing it. And it sounds like in that particular case, it wasn't at all, right? All of the other ways you look at it, you don't find anything. You only find it if you look in this one particular way. Well, that would be an important thing to know, right? That would be important for the science and the field to know that this only works 
in this one study, if you measure it this way, and if you fish around enough, you'll find something that could be consistent, which means that maybe we shouldn't trust that a whole lot until we can replicate with that particular way of analyzing the data and see if that holds up consistently. We should also check to make sure that it holds up for real reasons as opposed to just something odd about how you've constructed the measure, right? It might be that it's completely reliable when you measure it that way, but it's just sort of an artifact of the structure of, of data of that sort. So I think the most powerful way to do that is say, hey, I want to make a claim that we've discovered some relationship or some bias. Well, if you want to claim that it's a general truth about how the world works, you want to be able to show that it works under a range of different ways of measuring it and under a range of different conditions, not just the one special one that you identified. And I think this has been an issue in our field for a long time is that, you know, there's obviously a goal to try and support the theories that you're working under. Right? That, that's a natural thing to be doing, and it's not necessarily a terrible thing to be doing. But we haven't been completely straightforward as a field in reporting all the things we've tried. And depending on the kind of approach you're taking, that can be really misleading if you don't report everything the way it was done. It's, it's cherry picking, in a sense. You're, you're taking out the results that you wanted and ignoring all the ones that didn't work. And you're left with the reader only having in the paper that you read about it, focusing on the information that you've told them. And it's just like a magician who's directed you to the thing they want you to see and hidden all of the secret methods that get you there. Yeah, you, in a way, as the, as the researcher who did that, have inadvertently become the con artist, although you had no intention to do it and you're not actually trying to deceive, but you're accidentally sort of using some of those very same techniques that people could use, you know, to, 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 to do worse things than publish a paper that didn't, you know, that didn't actually uh, have good evidence for its conclusions. Yeah, it strikes me that one of the things, as I was reading your uh, th this excellent book, a lot of this just has to do with taking the tools of good science to the way that we interpret the world around us. So the things about asking more questions and digging deeper and so on. Uh, but it's interesting that even scientists don't always do good science. Yeah, we're all, we're all capable of being fooled, right? I mean, scientists and maybe journalists are trained to dig more and ask more questions and to think critically about what they're hearing. But, you know, we're human. We have the same sorts of habits and ways of thinking. We tend to like results that support what we predicted. And we're drawn to the same kinds of information. And if somebody's looking to sort of hide what they're doing, they can fool scientists. I mean, it's, there are plenty of fraudulent papers out there that got through peer review, even though there were red flags. And just like that sort of heist movie that you watch from the outside and you see all of the red flags along the way that people are falling for, but you're not falling for them because you're watching them. In hindsight, they're all obvious. Right. But in that moment, you don't necessarily see them as red flags until you know, oh, wait, that paper was fraudulent. I found out through other means. Now I can see all the red flags that are there. Yes. So as I was reading the book, the way I was thinking about it was, you know, the brain is, of course, locked in silence and darkness inside the skull. And it's just trying to make a, an internal model of the world out there, a mental model. And we're always, we're always very limited in what our internal models can detect, can see. And so one of the most important things to expanding our model is to ask questions. And, and in a sense, this is the same as paying attention to something. We ask a question that forces us to attend to some aspect, and then that updates our model a little bit. So um, in chapter four, you guys had a, a, an example of a chess grandmaster that asks his students to always ask three questions when they're looking at the board. Can you tell us about that? 
I, I would I would love to tell you I would love to tell you about that. So I actually uh, took a <laughs> during COVID I took a summer chess camp on Zoom with this guy, um, and uh, it was me and like twelve people age ten and under. Um, which was a fun, you know, which was a fun, because uh, who goes to summer chess camps, right? It's like, you know, kids gauge 10 and under. Very good players, by the way. Uh, and, you know, one thing that he often, that the coach would often do, his name is Jakob Ogard. He's one of the most famous chess coaches in the world. And it was privileged to be able to sort of be in his camp for a few hours. He would constantly say, we need more, you know, you need to think of more moves, right? In a chess position, there's like 30 to 40 moves you can typically play, with, you know, with, with all your pieces. And people are often become too focused on one. So he would say, think of more candidate moves. Think of more moves you might want to play and analyze. And if you're having trouble thinking of them, he has specific questions that you can use to try to generate ideas. And one of them is, what's your worst place piece? And maybe you should move it if that's the one that's in the worst position. Or what's the opponent's idea? Well, maybe you should come up with a move that stops their idea. The third one is, what are the weaknesses? Maybe you should come up with a move that attacks something that's weak. I mean, and this is this will make sense to people who play chess, but these are they're in, in almost all fields. They're sort of general kinds of, of things you can look at and principles you can use to generate, um, you know, to generate more information. And as you say, I like your, I, I like your way of putting it to sort of improve your mental model of what's really going on, because in order to, in order to play good chess moves, you have to have a good internal model of what's going on on the board. Um, someplace in your brain, you've got to have it. Um, and that's a way of sort of generating more ideas, more analysis that then updates, that then updates the model. And most of the time, the models that we have for how the world works are pretty good, right? I mean, we, we're not, you know, constantly getting, getting conned. We're not, you know, we don't have trouble getting around. We don't have trouble communicating with other people. Um, most of the time, our models of how the world is working are, are great. They work very effectively. And it's only in those cases where we need to dig a little more to update our model for the possibility we're being cheated or deceived that we need to ask a lot more questions, right? Most of the time we've built up these models from a ton of experience and they generally do okay. Yeah. And we have expectations about what we're looking for given these models such that most of the time we're filling in the blanks. And that is at the heart of all these hoaxes and scams that you talk about throughout the book is we're filling in the blanks and the things that aren't said, we assume we know what they, what they mean. So I'm curious what you guys think about the Turing test. And uh, for the listeners, in case uh, someone doesn't know, the Turing test was proposed by Alan Turing to figure out when a machine has become as smart as a human. The idea is that you are the evaluator and you're talking to a machine and you're talking to a human, let's say by text, and you don't know which is which. And the question is, can you tell the difference between the human and the machine? And the interesting part is because we bring so much to the table in any conversation and we fill in the blanks, what do you guys think? Is that a good, meaningful test or is it flawed in that way? I think we have a lot of evidence that it's it's not so good uh, from from chat GPT and, and large language models, which I don't think are actually intelligent in the way that we should. I mean, I realize there might be some dispute about this and some people make some sort of extravagant claims about signs of general intelligence, but um, I don't think they're actually intelligent or at least not in a, a useful way. And yet they are extremely convincing. I mean, I think they, they show that you can sort of dissociate you know, producing what humans expect to see next, which is basically, you know, basically what large language models do because they've been trained to sort of, you know, output the most probable next token or word and so on. You can dissociate that capability from having sort of a true understanding of what's going on. For example, you could ask an LLM to play chess with you 
and it wouldn't do very well. It would produce a lot of stuff that sounds like chess and so on. But if you really knew the game of chess, you would know that this is, is sort of gibberish. If you don't know, it sounds perfectly good, right? You just you just sort of you you fill it in with sort of the assumption that this guy sounds like he knows what he's talking about, <laughs> you know, which is which is not nat- you know not necessarily in- intelligence. Things like Chat GPT, uh, they they speak with absolute confidence and certainty, right? And that's regardless of whether or not they're generating true content. You know, they're the consummate bullshitter, right? In that they they are equally confident when they're completely wrong and when they're completely right, because there's no grounding to any sort of reality in the world. All they're doing is predicting what comes next. That's true. Although I have to say, one of the things about ChatGPT that I've really come to appreciate is that almost any question that you ask it, it'll say, look, some people think this, some people think that. And in conclusion, we need to balance these uh, points of view. And at first I found that really annoying, but I came to understand and appreciate that it is trying, um, you know, because of the reinforcement learning and so on, it's trying to give different perspectives instead of sounding totally confident about just a single answer. You, you kind of wish politicians would talk to you that way sometimes. Exactly. Um, inst- <laughs> instead of the way they do. Yeah, well, it's, 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 it's reasonable. Um, I just don't think ChatGPT believes that both of those things are equally, you know, are equally likely to be true and so on in any, in any meaningful way. I think, you know, it's the part of the danger, I think, of, 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 of models like this is if you don't understand how they work. And if you just see this is AI, like a lot of times you see these posts on Twitter that say an AI did this. That's just designed to impress you, right? And to mislead you by thinking that therefore the results must be created by genius and totally accurate. But if you actually understand something about how it works, then you will have the reaction you did. You'll say, well, this is this is kind of interesting that it's trying to give, you know, sort of two equally like probable, you know, schools of thought here or, you know, uh, common, you know, views on the topic or something like that. Um, but you understand something about how they work. So it doesn't, you know, it, 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 they, their output sort of is, is more uh, sensible to you than it might be to people who don't know. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. 
Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, temp to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. I want to come back to uh, just something you mentioned about politicians. One of the things I was thinking about as I was reading the book was politicians often get points deducted if they change their mind on something. They're called flip-floppers. And it's such a shame because we know that if people are using scientific reasoning, they might reasonably change their mind uh, about some issue at some point. The question is, how would you guys see a way to change something about the way we educate the public so that politicians who change their mind on a topic are not considered flip-floppers and deducted points? No, I, 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 guess, I guess I would say that um, this refers back to our taste for consistency. So there's something appealing in consistency of a wide variety and consistency in a person's behavior is also appealing to us. And in many times that's good, right? You want someone who keeps their word. You want someone who says what they are going to do and then does what they said they would do. You want someone who's always on time. Like those are generally positive things. But when you're talking about complex subjects, like what should climate policy be? You know, what should tax policy be? Any of these kinds of things and so on. Facts change over time, you know, and, and that alone, never mind, you know, using scientific reasoning, but just the changing of facts might, you know, might change people's views. I think teaching people about the trap of consistency, you know, may start to help. I'm not sure there's like an easy nudge that is going to make people suddenly prefer the flip-flopper because after all, sometimes the flip-flopper is just being expedient, right? It's not as simple as saying like, well, we should, anytime someone flip-flops, we should just assume that they are, have done some complex ratiocination and integration of new information. And, and now they've changed their mind. It could be, they're just saying something to a different audience. Cause that's what is expedient for them at the moment. It's a tough problem to sort out, but but certainly I don't think we should have the bias against changing one's mind that is really seems to be built into the political system. Because I do think it contributes to some polarization also, right? In order to be a consistent conservative, you always have to do this in order to be a strong, you know, it, it's it, it's definitely it definitely has its 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 costs. Well, and, you know, scientists also aren't necessarily the greatest at updating their beliefs in light of evidence, right? Um, there, there are plenty of people who get evidence that should contradict their claims, but they continue arguing for the old 
position without fully updating their their beliefs accordingly, right? Every time somebody encounters a failure to replicate their own work, right? What's their reaction? Well, I'm going to try and find all of the things that were done differently in that in that replication attempt that could maybe excuse why they didn't find what I found. And what they really should do is say, okay, you know, that may or may not be right. I might disagree with it, but it should make me a little less likely to believe in my original result. And maybe there are alternatives and I need to go test those. And if those alternatives don't work out, then I should be changing my beliefs. But you don't see that all that often. You don't see the person going back to the study and saying, okay, I'm going to prove that it was this moderation that explained why they get they didn't get it, but I did. More often than not, you have a dismissal, right? Well, that's really not all that different than what a politician does when they refuse to change their views in light of new data. Yeah. You know, I think this is uh, back to this issue of complexity in science, which is that it essentially works by the advocacy system, which is that you're supposed to defend an idea all the way down until you can't defend it anymore, and then you give up on it. But so when someone says, oh, I didn't replicate your thing, you might be the only one who says, hey, I'm willing to defend this and really fight for the idea until I reach some point. The question is, what is the proper point? And, and, and as we said, scientists are humans too. And so they really care about their reputation and their previous publications. And that's fine. And so it's what, what's, what's the point, but also, uh, what evidence do you use to defend it? Yeah. Right. So if you, if the evidence you use to defend it is, Hey, we can still get our result and we can show why you didn't get it. That's great. Right. Then you, then you've bolstered your position. You've, let everybody to update what their beliefs are. If your defense is they're incompetent, that's not a great defense. It might be true, but you'd have to show why and then show that if you do it in the incompetent way, you don't get the result. Well, according to the adage um, that science progresses one funeral at a time, that point is the point of death, right? And so there is a generational aspect to some of these to some of these things. I think there's there seriously is right. There's sort of generations gen- generations often are associated with particular schools of thought or views that sort of pass and. Uh, and, and evolve. It would be great if we could get there before then, right? Um, so th- we, we should get there before that point. But uh, it's, I don't think, I'm, I'm not so bleak, I'm not so bleak on this maybe as, as as some people, because I think a lot of times what happens is people just sort of drop out of the debate, right? They may not have changed their mind, but they don't become an important person in that in that area anymore, or at least the, the next generation who's doing all the interesting work doesn't take those people that seriously anymore. They're still alive <laughs> where, you know, their funeral hasn't happened yet, but they may be moved on to another topic. They're doing something else in science, maybe, but they're not like exerting like an iron, you know, an iron fist, you know, rule over some area. Like when a science works that way, that's pathological. Right. But, you know, when when someone's views like, you know, must be then then we're you know, you're not talking about science anymore. Right. I think a lot of people just sort of move on instead of and, you know, be, before it's too late. Yeah. And this is the great part about science is that it is the only endeavor that's constantly knocking down its own wall. So with enough time, the truth will out. Things are changing really rapidly ever since you, you know, finished writing the book and and sent it off. And so one of the things that I want to ask about are things like what's happening with AI and deep fakes. What are the new kinds of hoaxes that you see coming down the line well, I'll raise one that's not new. Um, and I think it's important to point out that none of the hoaxes that 
have happened over the thousands of years are really fundamentally all that different in the way that they take advantage of our tendencies, right? And that that's the thing that we noticed across all of these different domains from chess to sports to art to science, that they all take advantage of the same sorts of tendencies. And new scams are going to do that too. They just might do it more effectively. I mean, even the Nigerian prince email scam was originally a Nigerian prince mail scam right? back when people sent letters. It's more effective in that they don't have to spend as much time and effort finding potential victims, right? Some of these scams with the advent of AI are going to become more effective, right? So one that's common right now is it's either the, you know, your kid's been arrested scam or has been in an accident or is being held hostage. It's a horrible thing, preying on people's fears. They'll call up a parent or a grandparent and say that the kid needs to be bailed out immediately, right? And often they'll call up you know, a relative, like a cousin or something. Now that scam's pretty effective because people want to quickly solve this problem, right? They want to quickly fix what was wrong. And often we don't have the preventative measures in place um, to, to stop that. But imagine how much more powerful that is if you're using AI voice synthesis to make the call, right? And it actually sounds like it's coming from that person. That's going to ramp that one up. Same principles, it's just more potent. I think a... um. A whole area which is rife with scams, which is a, a new area, but, you know, sort of rescamming based on old principles is cryptocurrency. So there are thousands and thousands and thousands of cryptocurrencies and coins being issued and, and, and so on. And, you know, as far as I can tell, most of that is mostly fraud. Uh, and but it, yet it relies on all the same principles. You've got sort of like familiar celebrities advertising these things. You've got time pressure. There's a limited offering. You know, you've got to make a decision now. You've got the sort of like fake consistency. Like people will claim that like our crypto fund is you know never had a down month in all of its three months of existence or something like that. You know, but consistently going up and and all the same stuff just being applied to a whole new uh, being applied to a whole new thing. And I don't really see that you know getting any better. I, I as far as um. AI and deep fakes and and so on. I, I do have some optimism that it's going to increase the value of of truly trusted sources who bother to check that stuff, right? So I noticed during there were not long ago there was this sort of pseudo attempted coup revolution weird thing that happened in in Russia. Uh, you know, sort of paramilitary group kind of turned on the military and and started marching to Moscow and so on. And I was fascinated by this and paying attention to Twitter. And there were all kinds of reports on Twitter people claiming to be like eyewitnesses to things and so on. And very little of that made it to the mainstream media or to legitimate sources. And I thought about it afterwards. I thought, why is that? You know, well, maybe some of it was true, but probably most of it just couldn't be verified. You know, it was like one guy said they saw something. They couldn't find someone else who saw the same thing. They couldn't find the underlying, you know, whatever it was that was supposedly the source of the evidence. But nonetheless, the story that emerged although a little more vague and abstract with less detail, was probably much more likely to be true because it was sort of filtered through agents that bother to check and try to only pass on verifiable information. And they are now faced with the problem of how do you tell whether this video of Trump doing X is actually Trump doing it or some fake that someone created, right? But I don't know who else to put more trust in, you know, for sorting that out than journalists. Um, and, or, and there are some organizations that they work with who are experts at detecting these kinds of things and so on. So I think maybe it might paradoxically increase the the value and the um, attention paid to more legitimate sources, which I think would probably be a good thing on balance. I mean, the pessimistic view is that these things get increased in scale, right? It makes it much easier to scam at large 
scale and make it sound plausible, right? But uh, the optimistic take is exactly what Chris was saying, that once we realize that these things are possible at scale, maybe we start being more skeptical of most of the sort of rapid information that we get and we withhold judgment just a little bit longer until we can have some verified sources. And the ideal would be if we could actually have verified sources again. We, we haven't had that for a while now that anybody can start up a cable network and say whatever they want. This, this is something I've been wondering about recently is all of these things that we're very concerned about, like deep fakes, will the younger generations be much less susceptible to them because they're well aware that if you see a video of something, it might be real, it might be fake, as opposed to, uh, you know, those of us who are older are really concerned about it in a way that we might not need to be. I think that's a really good question. I'm, I, I think the jury's still out on that because I think in some ways, younger people are a bit more naive about some things. They don't have certain experiences and so on. On the other hand, as you say, they may be more used to the idea that videos are not proof the way people who uh, grew up in an era of less video and, uh, and, and less awareness of video editing and so on might not be. I'm reminded of the sort of discussion that you heard, you know, 15 to 20 years ago about the so-called digital natives and how having grown up with technology, they were so smart in using it and so on. And then when I became a college professor, I found out that students didn't really know how to do a, right, a proper Google search, you know, and so on, even though they were supposedly natives, like it's not it's an American not being able to, you know, to, 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 to speak English correctly. So uh, that gives me less optimism. But I think in general, across generations, I think there's going to be a rise in a rise in skepticism, maybe somewhat of a decline of truth bias. It, it, truth bias can't decline too far. Otherwise, we just can't interact with anybody anymore. But maybe a sort of a decline or a, a specialization of truth bias where you have sort of a little bit more truth bias in some areas, like when you're talking to an actual human being standing in front of you and less when you're watching a video on TikTok, like that would be a nice balance to have, right? And not to pick on TikTok, but there seems to be more nonsense there than most other places, just from what I've noticed. Okay, so zooming out, give us some practical advice for people some tips they can take home. Well, I'd say one quick one is that whenever you're in a situation where the consequences could be big, be willing to ask more questions. And it can be socially awkward to do that, right? To kind of press for more information. But doing that's essential if the consequences of being deceived are, are big. And sometimes you can kind of get started on asking questions without actually, you know, being hostile and aggressive. It's like, can you tell me more? is a way of getting somebody to talk a little bit more, give you a little more information that might actually make it more comfortable to ask questions about that more information they give you, right? So the sorts of skills that, you know, many of us develop in academia where you're giving a talk and you can stand up and ask the hostile question, or you could ask a question that reveals more information. And the goal is to try and reveal more information and remain a little uncertain until you have that information. One broader one is if somebody were trying to scam me in this situation, let's say you're investing in something, if somebody were trying to scam me, how would I know? Right. So if I'm thinking about investing in crypto and say, is that a scam? How would I know if that's a scam? If you can't answer that question, then you probably should walk away. Right. So if you don't understand how blockchain works and how crypto coins work, you probably shouldn't be investing in crypto regardless of what a celebrity tells you. If it were a scam, how would you tell? Well, it'd be really hard to tell if you don't understand how it works intimately. I'll give two uh, practical ideas also. I think one is don't make really important decisions all by yourself. Um, we came across many examples where people were about to make mistakes, big mistakes. Like, for example, one of those guys was about to give 
to wire money to the fake French defense minister. And his friend walked into the room where he was having this call with him. And he immediately right away said, this can't be real. This must be a scam. And why was the friend able to notice, but the victim, the intended victim wasn't? Well, probably the the friend had not been in on all the previous conversations. So there wasn't sort of that sunk cost idea, that idea of a relationship and so on. And maybe it was just he had a different mindset that day. He had a different attitude. He was thinking different things and he never got sucked into the whole thing. So ask a friend, get an outside view before you make a big decision. Should I really send all my life savings to this guy, you know, just because everybody says he's the greatest thing? Or is there any other consideration I should be using when investing my money? So that that's one. The second one is like, do your work on deadlines, but don't like give away your money on deadlines. So if anybody ever says like, you know, you've got to do this within a certain period of time, the police are coming to your house if you don't like pay this bill right away, or this offer's exploding very quickly, you know, or there's, there's only one of these things left or whatever. Y- y- just be aware that like, that's a prime environment to not have time to ask questions, not have time to think about the information you're missing, not go through any of this and realize that like, you can still buy that thing the next day if you really want it. You can still invest your money next week after you've checked the guy out. You're not going to lose much. Uh, I would I would go with those two. So that was Dan Simons and Christopher Chabri. Now, what we learned from them is that a lot of protecting ourselves against deception is about taking the tools of science, which is nothing but the tools of thinking clearly, and applying those to our daily lives. So, for example, if somebody says something is true, whether from their position of authority or religious status or with a trust-me-on-this-one vibe, the key is to trust but verify. The important thing to get in the habit of is just asking the next question. And it's tough because life doesn't allow questioning everything. Our schedules just don't allow that. And we have to operate on trust for most of what we do. And sometimes we find ourselves in a situation where someone doesn't quite answer the question we've asked and it feels impolite to keep pressing on it. And also, what is life if we don't trust? But the fact is we can always get a little smarter, a little less gullible by knowing that reality can be different in different heads. And whether we're talking about Tanya, my fellow graduate student, or the dealer of the shell game, or Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos, or whatever, it's incredibly useful to stretch beyond the parochial limits of our mental models of the world. Because with more knowledge comes a bit more immunity. And understanding the character of our brains allows us to move through the world a little bit more smoothly than we would without that knowledge. Go to eagleman.com slash podcast for more information and to find further reading. Send me an email at podcast at eagleman.com with questions or discussion, and I'll address those in a special episode. Until next time, I'm David Eagleman, and this is Inner Cosmos.
Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity, designed for women's unique retirement needs, with flexible withdrawals plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. Gainbridge is helping build a better financial future for women. Retirement income you can't outlive is the ultimate flex. Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, full product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information.